This lecture is looking at the just war, uh, sometimes called the just war doctrine, uh, what the Catholic tradition, Christian tradition says about war. And one of the key points we need to take on board is that war can be a tool towards peace, uh, but only if it is what is called a just war. So we're looking at this in the Catechism. Uh, the Catechism treats of this in the context of the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill. We've already noted when we looked at uh, parts of this uh, Catechism treatment of the tenth, fifth commandment already, um, that this, the meaning of thou shalt not kill is immediately specified in the Bible itself. Um, that it's about not murdering, um, or particularly about not taking innocent life. Now, what is it about the use of violence in war that somehow isn't a breach of that commandment? So somehow, according to scripture, according to our Christian tradition, not all killing is taking innocent life. So let's start, um, as I note on my notes, um, question of killing in general. Is all killing sinful? And the Christian tradition says no. So first I look at the question of self-defense. And the Catechism says, if a man in self-defense uses more than necessary violence, it will be unlawful. Whereas if he repels force with moderation, his defense will be lawful. It is not necessary for salvation that a man omit the act of moderate self-defense to avoid killing another man, since one is bound to take, take more care of one's own life than of another's. That your life has been entrusted to you by the Creator, you have a duty to take care of it, to defend it. And if the minimum amount of force to render your aggressor unable to be aggressive to you, unable to hit you, to, to hurt you, if the minimum force to stop him in a particular case is a degree of force that is fatal to him, then it becomes an appropriate level of force. It becomes um, necessary violence, appropriate violence. Similarly, the Catechism notes Defending others, that we have people that are entrusted to our care, that the, for example, the father of a family has a duty to protect his family. Um, so I quote there, uh, not from the Catechism, first of all, but actually from St. Thomas Aquinas, who in turn is quoting from St. Augustine. And if we want to know, well, what does the Lord Jesus have to say on this question? Um, St. Augustine ponders the fact that the Lord Jesus met many soldiers, and if war in general was wrong, he would have told the soldiers to stop being soldiers. So, this is what St. Augustine says. If the Christian religion forbade war altogether, those who sought salutary advice from the, in the gospel would rather have been counseled to cast aside their arms and to give up soldiering altogether. On the contrary, they were told rob no man by violence or false accusation and be content with your wages. If he commanded them to be content with their pay, he did not forbid soldiering. So St. Augustine's point is that soldiering per se isn't problematic. You can be a soldier 
in various unjust ways, but being a soldier, being in the army, um, fighting is not per se problematic. And the Catechism notes that the defence of the common good of a nation, of a society, means that those who are responsible for the common good, the government and the army employed by the government, have a duty to defend the nation using force when necessary. And we'll notice, not immediately, not as the first tool, but as a tool. Page two of my notes there, um, I start by looking at the criteria that are listed for just war. Um, and before we look at those criteria, let's look at another quote from St. Thomas, who again on this question is quoting Augustine. And this puts us to the primary question in anything here, which is rather than aiming at war, we need to be aiming at justice. And how do you achieve justice? Well, sometimes the only way to achieve justice is through the use of force. St. Thomas, quoting Augustine, puts it this way. He says, those who wage war justly aim at peace. Hence Augustine says, we do not seek peace in order to be at war, but we go to war that we may have peace. Be peaceful, therefore, in warning, so that you may vanquish those who you are at war against and bring them to the prosperity of peace. So in my notes there, on page two, I list um, three different sets of just war criteria, according to St. Thomas, according to the U.S. Bishops' Conference, and according to the Catechism. And I list those three different sources and indicate how each of these defines the criteria differently to indicate that there isn't a single listing of these criteria in the Catholic tradition. But I also list them side by side so that you can see that actually they're very obviously saying the same thing. They arrange the lists differently, um, but in, in all of them, the same criteria are present. Now, because the American Bishops' Conference in its 1983 document, The Challenge of Peace, um, breaks down these criteria in the most exhaustive list, and um, we're going to go through that in my notes. Uh, so that's the, the listing we're going to follow, um, because it's just a more detailed way of framing the criteria listed in the Catechism. So page three, um, just war criteria. So you'll notice at the top of the page there, it says jus ad bellum. So the American bishops split the criteria into two sections, jus ad bellum and jus in bello. That looks like it's an I, not a colon. Um, ad bellum means towards war, in bello means during war. So before you start going to war, there's certain criteria you need to think, are these criteria in place? Even before you start anything. Then when you're fighting, you need certain things to be doing while you're fighting in order that the war will continue to be just, not just that it started just. So in bello, those are the criteria during the war. Ad bellum, 
the criteria that have to be in place before you decide to go to war. So page three there, there are three criteria listed. These three criteria are the same as St. Thomas's criteria, legitimate authority, just cause, and right intention. So legitimate authority, uh, and this, um, I say, was in the Catechism too. So I say public authority has responsibility for the common good. We all remember that. Yeah, why does the government exist to serve the common good? That means it's got to protect the common good. If you've got your farm that is providing food for your family, uh, and at any moment the Russians are going to come in and take it, um, you are not safe. The common good, in effect, doesn't exist. It has to be not just promoted, it has to be defended. That's the role of the government. I say, note, the Catechism indicates that it's governments, not the bishops or even the Pope, that determine whether just war conditions are met. Francisco, can you read this quote from the Catechism for us? The, the, evi the evaluation. The evaluation of these conditions for moral legit legitimacy belongs to the prudential judgment of those who have responsibility for the common good. So the government has information from spies, the government has information everybody else doesn't have. It's their job to make that judgment call. But frequently in history, they make that judgment call wrong, and the people need to hold them accountable for those judgments. But it is their job to make that judgment call. And the bishops, I'm saying it's not the bishops' job to make the decision. The bishops do have a role in condemning what, at least on the basis of public knowledge, appear to be unjust decisions and criteria, and certainly unjust reasoning. I make a little note there about the war on terror, or the war against terror. Um, this was more relevant as a phrase a few years back, but I say it's often said that this is a new type of war, the war against terror. So there's no precise enemy. It's not just we're going to get the French. Yeah, these terrorists that are kind of all over the place. No precise nation is being defended. We're defending the West. We're defending Western civilization. That's not a precise boundary. And with that, I say no specific competent authority. Who's making the judgment call there? I say, however, many ancient wars fought under the classic just war criteria were actually so-called war against terror types against guerrilla groups. So this is in some sense a new set situation, but in many senses it's not. Yeah, no, okay. So who's going to decide it is the government's role? At an international level, that's why it is preferable to get some kind of cohesion and have the United Nations make a judgment call. But that isn't always workable. Is that the only way? You do need a legitimate authority. Just cause, our second criteria. See, war can only ever be a response to somebody else's injustice. And what that means is self-defense isn't the only cause. Quoting the Catechism, um, Eric, can you read that quote, the damage? The damage inflicted by the aggressor on the nation or community of nations 
Must be lasting, brave, and certain. So three words there, lasting. So war may not be used as a revenge for a temporary attack. So they do something terrible to us, and then we go and invade in response. That's not a lasting damage they've done. Grave, that war may not be used for trivial matters. So the French insult the Queen of England, and so we invade. Um, not trivial matters. Certain, this I think recent years is a big deal. We are certain that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. Now again, who here was alive at the start? You were all alive at the start of the Iraq war, but you were children. I can remember the start of the Iraq war. I can remember even people who were against the Iraq war starting, kind of, we all had heard and accepted and the evidence seemed clear Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. It kind of felt we all knew that, except Iraq didn't have weapons of mass destruction. And when we got there, that increasingly became clear as more and more places were examined. So this question of certainty is a big deal. And there is a degree, we talk about moral certainty rather than metaphysical certainty, that there's a type of certainty that is simply impossible. But you need a degree of certainty that is enough to make a judgment call for action. And that's what the Catechism is pointing to here. So a just cause. Last of our introductory things here, right intention. So I say this is a clarification on just cause. I must intend to pursue justice. See, rather than intend to use a just cause as an excuse to pursue some ulterior end, and one must intend to limit oneself to one's legitimate objectives. And here I give another example. The Gulf War in the 1990s, the first time we went into Iraq, had the just cause of liberating Kuwait, which had been invaded by Saddam. Um, but was our real intention about getting the oil in Kuwait? Now, I think, actually, the world has a need of oil. Access to resources like that is part of, as we'll look at the question of um, private property and the common good, and so I think an argument could have been made for liberating the oil, not just for liberating those people from the terrors Saddam was working on them, but that wasn't said. It was all dressed up as if, oh, we've got to free the Kuwaitis, and making no reference to all kinds of other people elsewhere in the world who were um, suffering under all kinds of other tyrannies right intention would say we intend what the just cause is, that that kind of limits what we're going to do. Now having criticized the just war there, the, the Gulf War, I would want to point out the Gulf War did actually satisfy in the sense that why did we not get rid of Saddam in that first war against Iraq? because we limited ourselves to the objectives that had to do with liberating Kuwait. 
So we went into the southern part of Iraq, destroyed the Iraqi army in as much as it was a threat to Kuwait, but didn't go all the way to Baghdad, didn't go and capture and kill Saddam. So that the li we did limit ourselves there and that it was appropriate to do so. You've got to specify your just cause, your right intent, and in your action, intend that I have a right intention as well as a just cause. Okay, I've thrown a lot of things out there. Comment, question? What? Jake. I think your point that actually there was an ongoing threat is actually a valid criteria. Um, but then we need to be sure that's how we're phrasing it. And, and on one level, to say it was terrible what happened to, at the Twin Towers, yes it was, but that doesn't make us going to war justified. An ongoing threat does. But then you really do have to ask the question, where is that threat coming from? rather than, okay, well, we can invade that country and then that one and that one, and we think the enemy is somewhere in the midst of that. Okay, this relates to further points here. Page four, last resort. So quoting the catechism at the top there, um, all other means of putting an end to it, i.e. the injustice, must have been shown to be impractical or ineffective. Um, Michael, can you read? So this is not from the Catechism. This is a, a long quote from an article on EWTN. Alternatives. Alternatives include one-to-one -one diplomacy, international pressure, economic sanctions, and such tools as blockades, quarantines, covert actions, and small-scale raids that do not amount to a full-scale full scale war effort. It is not necessary to employ all such methods before going to war. It is sufficient if rigorous consideration reveals them to be impractical or ineffective. Go on. But... But it is not necessary for the aggressor to strike first. A moral certainty that the aggression will occur is sufficient. Such certainty might be present, for instance, if a party with a history of aggression began amassing troops or munitions. In a world where it is possible for an aggressor to strike at a distance with little or no warning and to cause mass casualties, it is important to identify a potential aggressor early and determine whether he possesses a moral, morally certain enemy. And I say, for example, if an attacker threatens you with a gun, you don't need to wait for him to shoot you before defending yourself. 
He's got the gun. He's waving it in your face. He's saying, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. Just the way Saddam was saying. I will be the death of the West. I will kill you all. Uh, he was saying these crazy things. Well, can you really be surprised that we think actually you are going to do what you're saying you're going to do? So last resort, having said that, have we been through the other options? And there's a long list there of other options. Different criteria, probability of success. So the catechism says there must be a serious prospects of success. A theologian called Martino summarizes this by saying, it would be immoral to spill blood in vain. And I rhetorically ask the question, Afghanistan, Iraq, Vietnam, what was the probability of success in those wars? Had we mapped it out sufficiently to be able to say, okay, we've looked at the likelihood of success. We think we've, we've measured what success would look like, the end goal. Is there a probability of success, a reasonable serious prospect of success. Well, I mean, who's going to go into a war thinking, uh, we might not be successful, but it's worth a shot? Lots of people, I think, if you look at history. So politically, politicians will start a war because the people are in the mood. The people demand something be done. And going to a war can be a distraction from all kinds of domestic problems. Going to a war can just sometimes feel inevitable because of popular opinion. Sometimes it's the job of the government actually to say, okay, I know we're all worked up about this and we all think we've got to do something, but going to war isn't the right something. Or we're going to have to wait a whole year before we map out how we're going to do that. So on the face, what you say who would go to war when you don't think you're going to succeed? I think if we look at history, we find lots of examples where they just clearly hadn't mapped out what success was going to look like. Like what are some? Um, First World War? The prospects of success? Well, okay, the, 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 the recent Iraq war. I really don't think we had mapped out what success was going to look like. We'd say we're going to go in there and get rid of Saddam. Beyond that, what was the strategy? Now, I'm sure some people had strategies, but it clearly, as it mapped out, the initial phase was much more successful than everyone anticipated. But then somehow implementing a successful peace, which was necessary before our men could come out, that turned out to be a, a, just a nightmare that I don't think the probability of success had been mapped out sufficiently before starting. So specifically, I guess, American involvement in wars, that this seems to be the most consistent problem. Like, how would you say, like, what specificity do you need to get with what success looks like? Because you can't just say, oh, yeah. I'm going to Vietnam to prevent them from being communist. You kind of have to be a little more specific, but like how much more specific? 
That's a good question, and the catechism doesn't answer it. Okay, and this is a brief introductory course. Um, we've had enough of a discussion for you to see the questions, and actually to see, even at a government level, competent government level, it would be difficult to map out, but this has to be what the government is asking itself. Have we figured out what success is going to look at? Okay, I want to briefly note the question of nuclear war. Now again, when I was a child, this was a big deal. We're on the edge of this becoming a real threat with the Ukraine situation, where there is talk of nuclear weapons being used. Talk there of tactical nuclear weapons, which I would acknowledge is different from dropping bombs that will wipe out a whole city. But have you all heard of mutually assured destruction, MAD, as it was called? So when I was a child, that was what we were all kind of living under as the default model. That if the Russians attack us, they have enough weapons to wipe out all the world twice over. We have enough nuclear weapons to wipe out the whole world three times over. Both of us can wipe out everybody. So it's such a terrible thought, no one's actually going to start it. So mutually assured destruction was a policy whereby we think by having this situation, no one's going to start it. But if that had gone wrong, it would have been really wrong. Um, and there were people saying, uh, so the, as I summarized at the bottom of that little section, better dead than red is not a summary of church teaching. My grandpa, I can remember him saying, better dead than red, uh, and, and he meant it. Um, that doesn't match probability of success criteria. Yeah. So are you saying as the consequences become more grave, you have to be more certain of success since even though there may have been like a small possibility that anyone would start this, any possibility is problematic because it, it's like total destruction if it does get started. Yeah, I think so. Which actually leads on to our next question, or next criteria, which is proportionality. Yes? The gravity of like weapon, we weaponry that we're talking about is presuming like we have a moral party and an immoral party and both have nuclear weapons. Seems like you basically fall to the moral party to just roll over and say, "Yeah, we're not going to condemn us both." Wow! Glad you weren't in control when all this was going on. No, I'm, I'm, I'm joking. But um, I don't think that holds, because somehow we look back, and I think something to do of the the threat of deterrence which I do quote on a, a later page, John Paul II in a speech to the United Nations makes a very hesitant but accepting notion of the strategy of deterrence, which on some level is the mad policy, that we build our army strong, strong enough that you won't start the war. That's the threat of deterrence. And if we, if we de-escalate, while you remain at full escalation, that will just encourage you to start a war, not discourage you. I, 
I just mean like that's assuming we have a, lo a logical opponent. I think it, I'm, I'm proposing a hypothetical, but not something yeah. that's directly tied to current politics or anything. But it just seems like if you put put the extremes out there, like that's it's a pretty radical faith to exercise in that God is going to work everything out because. We do our pit, and what happens, ultimately, God does. But we do our bit. That's, the, the, in a sense, the notion of the just war. There's a just way of doing this, and many unjust ways of doing it. What we're going to do, we need to make just. Last of these criteria in bello, or rather ad bellum, before we go to war, is the question of proportionality, which has been kind of implicit in a few of your comments. So we're planning to go to war or we're envisaging war. What will the consequence of war be? How much damage will there be to everybody, including to us and them, if there's war? So proportionality. War must be a means proportionate to the end being sought. And so this entails foreseeing the expected outcome of the war. John Paul, can you read that quote? The use of armies must not produce evils and disorders graver than the evil to be eliminated. The power of modern means of destruction weighs very heavily in evaluating this condition. You all know the, the phrase using a sledgehammer to crack a walnut? Yeah, so a walnut does need to be cracked, but if you use too big a hammer, you damage not just the walnut, but everything on the table, is your use of war actually going to cause more damage than the real damage of not war? So Saddam, if we left him there, would have continued to butcher his own people. But how many of his people would have been butchered in the remaining decade or two of his life in comparison to the thousands and thousands and thousands who died in the recent Iraq war. That's what the proportionality criteria seeks to address. I mean, is that something for us to determine? I think that's what, like that's what you've got a duty to try and determine. Now, it's, it's something... Highly like, uh, I think he'll probably only wipe out a few thousand people. If we go in, maybe, maybe, maybe there'll be 10,000 casualties. So let's not do it. I think that seems kind of ridiculous. Yeah. That's exactly what the church is saying. Um, I, guess, I guess you have to use like, actual statistics to back it up. Well, th except before it happens, they are going to be hypothetical statistics. So you're trying to estimate what you're going to do. You have a strategy in place, and you can think okay, we're going to take out their water supply, we're going to take out their electricity supply, we're going to take out, um, in order to wipe out their army, that was the strategy, we know instantly what that is also going to do to the civilian population. We can map out effects fairly easily to, to at least some degree. In, in, uh in our rules of engagement, we, we have something similar to this. 
uh, at a basic infantry level, like we have to attack with proportionality. We cannot attack a guy with an AK with a tank. Or actually, in our rules of the game, is that we cannot shoot him with anything higher than than a 50 cal. To include the 50 cal, we cannot shoot that person with a. Uh, so that's proportionality. But in the other sense, we also have the. Like if there's one combatant, we don't go with one marine. We go with three or four. Right. Uh, so. In terms of prob probability of success. And then, uh, like that's, I think well, that's one of the reasons why bishops don't make the decisions whether to cause war, because we have intel, we have before, before we have uh, war and an, an, an analytics who do all the surveying, all the stuff, and they give us, they gather all the information. They make the, the intelligence and then they give us the, the intelligence so we make the plan in proportion to the to the information. Okay, if there's a, a wadi here and there's a town, if a little village here, we're gonna go through the wadi. We're not gonna go through the through the village. But now if the village is has is supporting Al Qaeda or supporting whoever, we're gonna we're gonna either clear or just get it off the face of the map, depending on the on the situation. Right, and you would know at a practical level all kinds of things I don't know, but I do know enough to know that a whole lot of the church's just war criteria are embedded in military strategy and operations. Uh, I'll come on to a specific example of that in a minute, um, but yes, thank you. All of this needs to be in place before you start going to war. Ad bellum. During the war, what criteria holds them? To so page five. Jus in bello. Uh, Jake, can you read that quote for us at the top of the page? The church and the human reason both assert the permanent validity of the moral law during armed conflict. The mere fact that war has regrettably broken out does not mean that everything becomes licit between the warring parties. So phrases like General Patton's war is hell um, sometimes get quoted implying, well, once we're fighting, kind of anything goes. Now the church is saying, even during the war, the moral law holds. How does it hold? These two criteria are kind of the key things within war that are highlighted. First, discrimination. Soldiers, civilians, non-combatants, wounded soldiers, prisoners, those are all different categories. You need to treat them according to what they are. The general principle, I say there, quoting um, catechism, the direct and voluntary killing of an innocent human being is always gravely immoral. So there's a category, innocent human life, you may not directly kill. I then say in bold, civilians are always to be considered innocent. I then quote um, from the source you can see in the footnote there, the issue is not so much that non-combatants in some mysterious way gain an immunity against the attack which their fellow citizen combatants lack, but rather they retain the immunity against the attack, which is a feature of normal human relationships. 
So a normal civilian is innocent. A normal civilian may not be attacked. Soldiers, how do they come to be in a different category? John Paul, can you read footnote 12 for us, that, with the, where it starts soldiers? Soldiers as a class are set apart from the world of peaceful activity. They are trained to fight, provided with weapons, required to fight on command. He can be personally attacked only because he is already a fighter. He has been made into a dangerous man, and if conscripted rather than voluntarily signing up to fight, though his options may have been few, it is nevertheless accurate to say that he has allowed himself to be made into a dangerous man. For that reason, he finds himself in danger. Does that make sense? The soldier, that's his, what he is. He is a man set apart to engage in war. Therefore, you can engage with him in that way. Everybody else is not a soldier, and you may not engage with him as if he was a soldier. That enemy soldier... Is his life still sacred? Yes, because everyone, he remains a human being. So how? But you're not attacking him as a person, you're attacking him as a soldier. Which may seem like I'm playing with words there, but if you, if you didn't like, if we imagine a civil war where you might actually know that person you're attacking um, and you hate that person you're attacking personally and the fact he's got a blue coat on rather than a grey coat is kind of irrelevant to you it just gives you a good excuse to attack him then you're not attacking him as a soldier you're attacking him as a person that would be wrong but if you are attacking him as a soldier as a soldier you may kill him but not kill him because of the person he is. You're not satisfied with that. How do we respect sanctity of life? And it's like saying, oh, he's not a, he's not a human. He's a, he, I consider him a dog, less than a human. There wouldn't be, a I, I suppose what I'm saying is there isn't, how you attack a soldier with proportionality, with some sense of fairness um, let's finish this little section and come back to your question um, because I think proportionality is part of the criteria there um, can I finish this little section on the page for so I give the example a here what I call first of all a relatively clear example relatively a military airstrike hits an enemy military base that contains some civilians, some civilians. So there's discrimination in that the aim was the military base. The side effect was a limited number of civilian casualties. And then there's a question of proportion. So the principle of double effect, which in this course we haven't had time to go through, must analyze if the action is proportionate. So the threat of this military base is it proportionate to the damage done to civilians that are also on the base? But because you're targeting the military, not targeting the civilians, therefore there is discrimination. 
B. Some less clear examples. Civilians who are building bombs and artillery for the army. Now I note this is usually seen as an illicit military target. So during the Second World War, we would bomb German military factories because they were military factories. That's different from just bombing German civilians. So the military factory that is supporting the military has become a target, a licit target. In contrast, civilian farmers growing food that feeds the aggressor nation is unlikely to be a licit target. Can you read that quote for us? Civilians who are not fighting and who are not engaged in supplying those who are with the means of fighting, i.e. they are making things that would be needed in one form or another in peacetime as well as war. So the farmer, he grows food for the Germans, whether the Germans are at war or whether the Germans are at peace. It, he just supports the German nation as a farmer. He's not, therefore, a licit target. He's different from the civilian who is engaged in supporting something that is directly part of the military effort and wouldn't be needed if the Germans weren't at war with us. So discrimination is this whole little category here. Innocent human life we may not attack. The life of the soldier, because he's been trained to be the attacker on us, we may attack. Someone who is directly supporting the soldier, doing something he's only doing in war, wouldn't be doing in peace, has likewise become an illicit target. Uh, footnote 13, the quote that says, uh, we try to draw a line between those who have lost their rights to not be attacked because of their warlike activities and those who have not. So could we properly say that the soldier has lost his right to life in some way? Like, in as much as he's human, he possesses the right to life, but in as much as he's a soldier or, or by his actions, he's like violated his basic human rights. Um, that's, that's Anscombe's argument there. Um, I'd be slightly more comfortable in phrasing it that as a soldier we can attack him rather than as a person. So in what sense has he lost his right to life? Only as a soldier. The instant he stops being a soldier, he regains his right to life. So he becomes a prisoner of war and he's again with a full right to life, to phrase it that way. Well, as long as he's attacking you, attack him but the second you wound him you're, you wound him he's down he's not attacking you cannot go kill him you have to provide the medical care proportionality proportion to in relation that he would receive so he wouldn't in any case lose his right to live per se yeah Jake With the, going back to the part about like civilians are always considered innocent I mean I understand that but like what about in some instances where civilians are directly like helping the soldiers. Like if you go into a village, they're not always just neutral, especially in some places where the culture where like children are brought up to be like And then the civilian has become like the maker of the um, maker of the bomb. And obviously we can see that's a very difficult line to figure out who's on what side. Um, but 
We start with the presumption the civilian as a civilian is to be treated as innocent. He needs to somehow show himself to not be just a civilian, but to be an aider of the soldier to get treated as a soldier. I'm just going to put that as a general principle. I am fully acknowledging that mapping that out in practice is not going to be straightforward. Over the page, following this out slightly differently. So what does discrimination mean with modern warfare? Because modern weapons make this much more difficult. So a little section here, top of page six, modern warfare. I say, new weaponry and accompanying strategies led many to question the notion of just war. So after World War II, you know, our hippies running around with flowers, sticking flowers into, into the military guns and whatever, say, you know, and just saying, well, all these criteria are irrelevant. Why were they saying that? Well, three things. Carpet bombing of civilian populations in World War II. So the Germans, they carpet bombed, um, there's a verb in German called to Coventryize. They, they flattened and destroyed our entire city of Coventry. The people were the target. Terrorize the people and you will destroy the nation. How did we respond? We then went to Dresden and we wiped out their city, attacked their people, not their military base, their people. The war ends and almost everyone's saying, actually, that was a horrific thing we all did. So carpet bomb bombing civilian populations. Second, atomic bombs used in World War II against civilian populations of Japan. Again, we attacked their cities. We didn't say, here we have a bomb big enough to take out the entire base in one single bomb. No, we said, hey, here we've got a bomb. If we attack their population cities, that will make them surrender. And it did. But we were attacking civilians. Third, uh, during the Cold War, nuclear deterrence was aimed at civilian populations. So all of our missiles were aimed at their cities. All of their missiles were aimed at our cities, aimed at the people. No discrimination at all. I say some concluded that these invalidate the just war criteria. I say, but the above three scenarios are more accurately seen as failures to apply the criteria rather than invalidating the criteria themselves. The failure to apply the criteria invalidates the wars. It does not invalidate the criteria. I then quote the theologian John Courtney Murray, the Ten Commandments do not lose their imperative by reason of the fact they are violated. Okay, then the phrase total war. Have you heard of the phrase total war? So total war, I say, is against a nation's civilians. So you are at war with the Russians. We're not just going to get their army. We're going to get them. Total war, everything Russian, becomes a licit target. This is total war. And there have been many such total wars fought in the history of the world. 
And I note that some of the popes there recently have very publicly and um, explicitly condemned total war. I do know that there's no precise definition given of what's total war. Um, those of you in the South may still remember um, General Sherman, his march to the sea, attacking the civilians all the way through. How do we defeat, subjugate, bully the Southerners into submission? We attack their people. This is total war. This is not discrimination. This is not just. You win, in one sense, um, not just. Okay, that's during the war. Can I just do the proportionality and then a question? I said two criteria during the war in Bello, discrimination and proportionality. So we had proportionality before we start war in general, saying, well, if we think of the whole war and try and think of the effects of the whole thing, is it proportionate to the problem, the injustice to begin with? Our specific action within the war, this particular thing we're doing, is this particular action proportionate? So, um, quoting uh, Chapco Martino again, in each individual military action, the damage to be done and the costs to be incurred must be justified by the military gain expected from the action. This is the proportionality criteria of jus ad bellum extended to the conduct of the war itself. So summarizing, I say, note for a moral warfare, the target may not be a direct attack on civilians and the damage to civilians must be proportionate. Uh, and the first example I gave on the previous page You've got an airstrike against a military target with a small number of civilians at the military base. There's proportion there. I then quote, or in bold, I have an example. Would an American nuclear strike against a Soviet city that killed one million Russians but saved two million Americans be proportionate? Can you read that for us, Adam? It would be a perverted political policy or moral casualty which tried to justify using a weapon which indirectly or unintentionally killed a million innocent people because they happened to live near a military significant target. Okay. Um, and you've seen the movie Eye in the Sky? So this is, uh, I think it's envisaging the CIA in somewhere in, in D.C. Um, and they're trying to kill a terrorist, I can't remember if it's Iraq or Afghanistan, very dangerous terrorist. Um, they've got their eye in the sky, they've got a satellite and they can see where they think he's moving, different houses, and they can target him and get a drone strike exactly where they think he is, the eye in the sky. And the whole movie is mapping out, they never refer to, of course, according to Catholic social teaching in the just but they're living out in government policy these same criteria discrimination so their big concern is how many civilians are around where they think he is uh, a large part of the final bit is actually some children moving right next to where they didn't think there were going to be children shifting the proportionality 
and then discrimination you are aiming at the violent terrorist you're sure he is there um, it's a good movie just seeing it maps out um, the, these criteria at play which is kind of echoing what you're saying there is already embedded in an awful lot of government military policy the criteria we're calling for um, and rather than Christians running around being pacifists, we, I would say we'd do a better job demanding that government actually fulfill and live out these criteria and justify to the public um, actions on those, those bases. Okay. Um, very briefly, page seven. Where does that leave pacifism? Um, so I give the example there, top of page seven. I say, for example, Gandhi's passive resistance to the British Empire in India. So he didn't have the Indians rise up and use violence. Um, and he, in the end, did achieve his goal of an independent India. Would that have worked if he'd been protesting against the Nazis? No. Um, there I say, because the British, even when we're being violent and thuggish, are being so within certain parameters. Um, <laughs> I say, the church, where does the church? The church has given qualified approval to, to such methods of nonviolent resistance. I say, but. Using non-violent resistance does not absolve you of your obligation to use violent means if violent means are necessary to protect, quoting, the rights and duties of others or of the community itself. So that rejects the notion that a Christian may exclusively commit himself to pacifism. Um, and so the US bishops speak of a complementary relationship between non-violent means and violent means. The violence is the last resort, but the non-violence is an earlier stage and you should kind of take that very seriously. Conscientious object, can I, can I finish this, this little section then? Conscientious objection. Where does that leave conscientious objection? So I say, not all war is just. That's what I've been trying to articulate here. Sometimes a government can script citizens to fight in an unjust war. So you're a good American, you're a good soldier, but America's going into an unjust war. Uh, Josh, can you read this quote from the Catechism for Public authorities. Public authorities should make equitable provision for those who, for reasons of conscience, refuse to bear arms. These are nonetheless obliged to serve the human community in some other way. Okay, what is conscientious objection? I note two false reasons. Someone who says all war is unjust. Well, that isn't in keeping with the Christian faith, as I've been quoting from the Catechism. Second, to say I'm afraid, that's not conscientious objection, that's simply cowardice, that's failure to do your part. But two reasons for conscientious objection. One would be to say this particular war is unjust. I am a soldier, I've seen what's being said about the Iraq war, this is an unjust war we're about to start, I conscientiously object. See, but 
in general, it's the government's role to determine war. So generally speaking, the soldier should say, I'm not sure what I've heard about this, but I know it's the government's job to make this judgment call. Second, though, during the war, this particular act in a war is unjust. So we're going into this village to do something and this action I'm being told to do isn't, doesn't look right. So, but in general, a soldier needs to obey orders and in general presume the chain of command acts in good faith. That said, I say, in both such cases, a person should be willing to die rather than act unjustly, willing to die rather than to sin. So there is, the church talks about conscientious objection as a serious thing and calls on governments to make provision for citizens to be able to conscientiously object and then to serve the common good in some other way. So my last but one parish, uh, there was an old man who I used to take communion to who was a conscientious objector during the Second World War. Um, which, you know, we look back now and think how awful the Nazis were. Even during that war, he just felt war was wrong. Um, and he was, in a somewhat humiliating way, made to do manual work to support the war effort that wasn't a soldier. But the government did acknowledge the thing of conscientious objection. Last question. On the... On the total war, uh, again, in the first push of Volusia, one of the the rules of engagement was like, okay, we have given sufficient warning to 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 the citizens to flee because we're gonna go invade. And uh, after one, once we start the invasion, anybody there is considered hostile. That 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 is that total war, or I I personally think that would be justifiable because we have given sufficient warning to everybody to flee. And I guess the question becomes, what is sufficient warning? But something of that, I sounds like something of a um, discrimination criteria has been sought, okay. and that's why. So why, what have, back to my kind of initial point, I'd say I think every war we engaged in in the last century we have done in an unjust manner in some form. That we've had, I think, I'm happy to be contradicted, but I think we've had a just cause in every war we've been a part of. But all kinds of different ways in which we've lived it out have then made the war unjust. And the more we are talking about these criteria, the more we can make sure they are more and more embedded in government decision-making processes so that we are a force for good in the world and don't end up doing more harm than good. <laughs>